Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with the Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. Our guest today on the Resilient Surgeon podcast is Diana Winston, and the topic is meditation and mindfulness. The world of meditation can be quite murky and hard to understand for newcomers for several reasons, including the wide range of meditation practices that are available and promoted by different teachers, the challenging terminology around aspects of meditation and mindfulness, And because of the tension that sometimes seems to exist between people committed to Buddhist practices and a more secular approach that has taken hold in the Western world. And Diana Winston is here today to help clear the confusion and hopefully inspire you to begin what I'm confident will be a life-changing mindfulness practice. Diana is the director of the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center and the author of The Little Book of Being practices and guidance for uncovering your natural awareness. And she is also the co-author with Susan Smalley of Fully Present, The Science, Art, and Practice of Mindfulness. In addition, Diane is the founder of the International Mindfulness Teachers Association, which trains mindfulness teachers worldwide. And she has an extensive and deep background in meditation and teaching mindfulness to physicians and medical students, universities, businesses, and schools. Her work has been featured in numerous media sources, including the New York Times, O Magazine, Newsweek, and many other books and journals, including the LA Times, which called her one of the nation's best teachers of mindfulness. I personally discovered Diana through the Waking Up app from Sam Harris, where she has an outstanding interview with Sam covering natural awareness and an incredible meditation series that she leads entitled The Spectrum of Awareness. Diana's approach to different forms of awareness practices includes the concept of natural awareness, which is an amazing and honestly life-changing practice available to all of us, not only during a meditation session in the chair or on the cushion, but in everyday life, anytime and anywhere. So whether you already meditate, have been thinking about starting a meditation practice, or even if you're thinking you would never meditate in a million years, please sit down, relax, and soak up what Diana has to say. It just might change your life. Diana, welcome to The Resilient Surgeon. It's a real honor and a privilege to have you here with us today. Thank you, I'm happy to be here. I'd I'd love to start, if you would be willing, to tell us a little bit about your background, and particularly uh, if you're willing to talk about your experience with uh, Rex 
in the backyard and your experiences becoming a meditation teacher in the path, you know, that led you to that and the struggles that you may have had along the way, just so people get a kind of a synopsis of, of your background and, and your general experiences. So, yeah, I started um, with meditation in my early 20s and I got involved in it when I was living in Dharamsala, India, where the Dalai Lama has the government in exile and there were all these people practicing meditation. And I was first I was very skeptical, wasn't terribly interested, but it was there was a little bit of peer pressure, like kind of everybody was doing it. And um, and it sounded very interesting and very compelling to me. I. You mentioned this um, this experience that I had as a young person, which really started to show up for me when I began to encounter meditation. And that was a time when I was uh, like about 14 or 15 and I was lying. Um, I was I had a job as like a mother's helper and I was I was exhausted. I was working all day chasing after little kids and I was lying. I finally came, went outside to rest and it was late at night and I lay down on a blanket in the middle of a field and I looked up at the sky and um, and I had this sense of like the profundity of the sky and the stars and this like almost like kind of collapsing into the stars or becoming the stars and this deep sense of of love and care came over me. And it was, as you can imagine, for a 14 or 15 year old, quite shocking mm -hmm. what's going on. And I really didn't know what it was other than than just like staying staying there. And I remember thinking like, OK. I really feel like I love everyone. That was the thing. And started thinking about people that I didn't even um, really didn't like, including at that time, a, a boy who was annoying to me. And I thought about him and I thought, my goodness, I actually like Rex even. How is this possible? Mm -hmm. So that was that was that early experience. And then when I was living in India and all these people were learning meditation, I would kind of listen. And there was this really like a promise of the possibility of having a mind of peace and connection and ease. And but um, you had to work at it, you know, and I was very, very driven kind of person. you know. And I thought, OK, that experience I had a long time ago, probably didn't even remember it at that time, but that was like sort of part of it. But what I understood was that I had to work really hard to become a good meditator. So once I got introduced to it in India, I then spent the next 10 years meditating. So I would do um, short retreats, long retreats. And for me, a long retreat might be like a month or two months or three months where I would meditate all day long. And it was primarily in this Buddhist tradition. But um, after a certain point, I decided to go ordain and be a Buddhist nun in um, Myanmar, Burma, with my teacher, who I was practicing with at the time. And it was really there that I got kind of, uh, I my all my sort of type A tendencies came out very strong, like wanting mm -hmm. to succeed, wanting to be a good meditator, wanting the teacher to like me, wanting, wanting to do, to if I could get an A plus in meditation, that was my goal. <laughs> and I spent a lot of time, you know, trying to, to make myself do better. And some of that was like very unskillful, you know, things like maybe if I stop sleeping and I just meditate all day long, then I'll, then I'll get my A plus in meditation. Or maybe if I sleep stand, sitting up, that was another 
lockdown idea and, um, and several other things that I would do to kind of force myself to just the harder I, I thought, like the more, the harder, the stronger, the longer I could meditate. What if I didn't move for hours and hours? Maybe something would happen to me. And what was your general sort of goal in all of that? Um, if there was well, in, one. Yeah. yeah. In these countries, um, in the, in the, in, in sort of the traditional Buddhist settings that I was involved in, there's very much of an emphasis on like enlightenment, you know, enlightenment. And, and as they understand it and it's understood in different ways, of course, but enlightenment is kind of the pinnacle of your meditation practice. And it's in, in this particular form of, of Buddhism, it was like the dropping of your greed, hatred, and delusion, and really eradicating them from your body and mind. And that seemed like an extremely worthy goal for me. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so something to strive for. Um, yeah. And it's a beautiful goal, but but you don't get it by um, beating yourself up to get there, you know, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. what I was doing. And, and so at a certain point, I pushed myself too hard and kind of went into like more of a collapse. And from that place, I thought maybe I should leave. And I went to my, I was just, I would just, I couldn't meditate. I was very upset. I felt a lot of like grief and loss and confusion. And I went to see my teacher and he, I said, I, I'm leaving. I'm going to the beaches of Thailand. And he looked at me and he said, fine, leave. But if you do, you will still be with you. Like you will follow yourself wherever you go. And, (laughs) and I knew in that moment that I had to really stay and work through it. And I began to practice in ways that involve more compassion and more kindness for myself and more of a sense of, of a a much softer, relaxed practice that that story from the early that I told you in the beginning, that Mm -hmm. came back to me so strongly, like, oh, you can just relax and be present in a very profound way. And you don't have to work so hard. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, the working so hard had a lot to do with not thinking I was good enough. And if I could be, if I could succeed at meditation and reach this concept of enlightenment, and then everybody would love me and I would never have problems again, and I would be the good person. And, and all of that was just a, you know, it was a detour because the truth was learning to be okay with myself as I am became the most profound aspect of my meditation practice. And that's what's guided me since. Yeah. Yeah. That level of relaxation around all of it. Yeah. <clears throat> I had a similar experience, much obviously truncated, but I, I started meditating after I was, uh, after I got out of uh, rehab, and uh, I, of course, took it on like a surgeon would. I decided to study, and I read John Kabat-Zinn's Full Catastrophe Living, and I dedicated myself to 45 minutes each morning, and I sat there and striving trying to keep my mind on my breath and failing miserably continuously and getting irritated and angry and, and all the, all the above. And, uh, it wasn't until I found Sam Harris's waking up app that I was finally relieved Mm. of that striving. Uh, it was, it was a really dramatic shift in the entire process. It made a big difference, but well, and then what was the path to UCLA? I mean, that's quite a shift. You're over in (laughs) that world and now you're in Los Angeles at UCLA. Um, yeah, it was a journey. Um, you know, I, I 
spent a year or so, well, about 10 years practicing in that year in the monastery. And then I came back to the U.S. and I started to get trained as a as a meditation teacher. And I was doing that for a while. I was um, primarily within a Buddhist context. Um, but it became very clear to me quite quickly that these practices are amazing practices that anyone could benefit from and that they don't um, they don't need to stay in the realm of the monasteries or these these retreat centers, but that that they could go out into the world. And so like others, like John Kabat-Zinn, you mentioned, and others, um, I started uh, trying to figure out how did I want to do that. And during that time, I met Sue Smalley. Sue Smalley was a a professor of genetics at UCLA, and she had gone through a, she had been a scientist who had no interest in meditation practice or anything. She was a researcher of autism and ADHD and, and, um, and she she had had a cancer scare. And when she went through a cancer scare, she started um, like doing meditation and yoga and all these other practices. And then she kind of, she healed herself. And then when she came back to the university, she wanted to bring these practices into the university in some way. So somehow we got connected and we realized that our visions were aligned and then I was ultimately hired and 17 years ago, started at wow. UCLA. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's been a while. <clears throat> do you like living in Los Angeles? Do you like the entire I process do. there? Yeah. <laughs> I never thought I would, but I'm extremely happy here. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. 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 Yeah. Well, you know, as I spoke to you about earlier, I, I suspect that most of our audience uh, have little or limited experience with meditation. So I think it'd really be great to just kind of start with some basics and you know, what is meditation? What is mindfulness? Uh, you know, get the kind of concepts and definitions down. And then what I love is, you know, if you can talk something about the science and tell us what the science tells us, but particularly experientially, um, you know, the, the, you're in your wonderful book, The Little Book of Being. Uh, honestly, I've never seen anybody outline the different types of meditation, the awareness practices that you do. And I think that that clarity would appeal to my uh, colleagues a great deal in terms of understanding this because it's kind of a it's kind of a murky world for the uninitiated you know so whatever wisdom you can give us is great on this topic okay so there's a lot of pieces here let me see where to start um meditation is a like let's start with that because meditation is a big category meditation mm-hmm. I, I i think of meditation as practices that cult, cultivate inward investigation really that's what meditation is so that's a huge category and there are just like sports is a huge category with hundreds and hundreds of types of sports meditation is also a big category and then there are different types of meditations and you know hundreds probably if not at least many many um so we can think of meditation in different ways. Like so, some so for instance, prayer could be a form of meditation. Mm-hmm. People might do movement meditations. There's meditations that cultivate uh, we cultivate qualities of your heart, like kindness or compassion. There's meditations that are more um, like transcendental meditation. People may be familiar with and healing meditations. There, I mean, there's just so many. Mindfulness is one category, which I call like awareness meditations, meditations that cultivate awareness and mindfulness. We can learn it as a meditation practice. It's also a quality of attention that we can have at any moment. So mindfulness, my definition of mindfulness, and this is my expertise. So like I said, 
many, many mm-hmm. types of meditation, but mine, the one that I teach is mindfulness. That's what our center, our research center at UCLA studies and teaches on. So I define mindfulness as paying attention to our present moment experiences with openness, curiosity, and a willingness to be with that experience. So much of the time, we're not in the present moment. We're lost in the past. We're lost in the future. We're replaying things that happened. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Going over it, feeling bad. Or planning for the future, obsessing, catastrophizing, going into the worst case scenario, planning, planning, that tends to be our minds. We go back and forth between the two. Mindfulness is an invitation into the present moment. And typically when we do that, it's it, it prevents us from the intense ruminations and brings us into the present moment, which can be quite neutral or sometimes easeful. And, um, and even when it's not mindfulness, there are tools with mindfulness where you can learn to work with it when things are a little bit harder. Let's say there's physical pain, or we can talk about these or emotional pain, but for the most part, getting out of the thoughts that get us into the past and into the future, which can lead to anxiety, depression, and also all of these types of, um, mental health concerns can be very much helped by coming back to the present moment. And that's the tool of mindfulness. And the meditation practice, which we invite people to do on a regular basis, helps to develop that capacity to return to the present moment. Mm-hmm. So what one might do in a meditation, maybe we can do a little bit later on, but yeah. is you is you notice what's happening in, your, let's say, your breath, with the rising and falling of your chest or abdomen, your attention wanders and you bring it back and you keep training yourself to come back again and again. And it is in that return that we learn the skill of coming into the present moment, not getting lost in ruminations. So that's kind of the basics of what mindfulness is. Um, And in terms of the science, I think you had asked about the science. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of science that's been happening around mindfulness. And that's probably, I mean, it started actually in the early 70s. And there were maybe only a few studies back then. And now we have around five, 6,000 studies, which is good. But that means there's still a lot more to be done, of course. And um, the studies tend to fall in a number of different areas. Like there's research looking at its impact on physical health and health and on stress related conditions mm-hmm. primarily. Mm-hmm. So my, there is some, there is good research showing that mindfulness is good as particularly for chronic pain. It's really helpful. Um, there's research looking how it boosts the immune system, impacts the healing response, even some looking at like genetic markers of inflammation are positively impacted by mindfulness. Um, insomnia, there's some good research looking at mindfulness and insomnia. So there's a lot in the in the sort of physical health category. And then mental health, there's quite a bit of uh, research looking at its impact on anxiety and depression. Somewhat for what, what I was talking about, like it's very helpful for ruminations and, but not just um, whether we have a uh, d- diagnosis as uh, anxiety or depression, but just the kind of ordinary anxiety. And Everyday depression. stuff. Yeah. Yes. That we all have being alive these days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So mindfulness is quite helpful with that. Um, there's research looking at looking at its impact on addiction and impulse control on on attention. So when I first started at UCLA, when I first met Sue Smalley, who I mentioned earlier, we were um, 
talking about uh, we she they were doing a research study on mindfulness for adults and adolescents with ADHD. And so we did some research with that and it really improved ADHD symptoms, conflict attention, particularly during during the course of an eight week study. So, yeah, so those those are some of there. There's more. I mean, I can I can go I can go into more or not, but I'll just name two other areas the the neuroscientists have been looking at the impact on the brain right. and some of that right. is pretty interesting and a, like i said a lot more studies to do this it's just it's very it's early. really early material yeah. very early yeah. yeah so they find things like thicker you know areas of the brain and people in mm -hmm. the same age range in the long-term meditators the areas are thicker in the brain or more cortical folds for meditators or you know, they look at it with fMRIs, like what lights up and what what's impacted by meditation. So that that part is that part is is very promising and very interesting. And last thing I'll mention, there's studies looking at the impact of mindfulness on altruism and kindness. And I really am mm -hmm. I'm very interested in those studies. Like, does it actually make you a better human being? Right. And right. Some of those studies seem to point in that direction. So. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um what you use the word investigation so the science is is good it's preliminary and i i know you know it's promising is is that an accurate way of kind of summarizing yeah, it exactly yeah. yeah but you use the word investigation and it reminds me of what joseph goldstein said um you know if you want to understand your mind sit down and observe it and so i mean for from my and and learning from the sam harris waking up app i I learned that the experiential quality of meditation is probably maybe the most important, you know, what your experience is and how you relate to your mind. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because certainly for me, meditating, it gave me a glimpse into how my mind is working, you know, and it, it caused some separation. I like to think of it as this kind of codependent relationship I had with my thoughts and emotions, you know, that I was, they were directly linked and it gave me separation from those. That was quite, uh, it's, it's revelatory for me. So thoughts about the investigation piece and, and that whole line of thinking. One of the best parts of mindfulness, in my opinion, it's kind of what you're talking to is the way that it helps us have a different relationship to our thoughts you know, most of us are lost in our thoughts all the time and at the mercy of those thoughts. And of course, some of our thoughts are incredible. I want to be mm -hmm. a surgeon is an amazing thought. Right. And those of us, those of you who follow through with it, incredible. Um, but then there's a lot of thoughts that lead to suffering and a lot of anxiety thoughts and depressed thoughts and angry thoughts. And right, right like there are ways that we cause so much suffering. So one of the beautiful parts about mindfulness is the way that it can teach us how to have a little space from those thoughts, a little freedom. And so some of the analogies I like to use are um, is like not getting on the train. You know, this is so it's like our thoughts are like trains. You have one thought, it leads to the next, the next, the next. And oftentimes it's quite can be quite annoying, right? Like, okay, mm -hmm. oh, I forgot to buy dog food. Oh no, I always forget to buy it. now. What if they run out of the kind of dog food I like? You yes. wish I had another dog. I you know, I've always wanted five dogs. What's wrong with me? I never get what I want in life, right? Oh, that's you know, never that. happened to me. That kind of thing. <laughs> never happened to me. <laughs> Just except every two minutes. <laughs> yes, exactly. So this is what it reminds me of like get on a train and it just leaves the station. 
And with mindfulness practice, it gives us the capacity to realize that we are on the train and that we can get off the train. We don't have to keep staying with that thought. We can notice that we're thinking. We can use a word like thinking or planning or obsessing or imagining and get off the train. And as we practice over time, for those of you who meditate, and maybe some of you will try it at some point or have already, you will start to have places where you stay at the platform and you don't ever get on the train in the first place. And this is a lot of freedom. And what we're pointing to, and I think you're asking about, is a concept we call non-identification. And non-identification is when we go from being lost in something, oh, my story, my anxiety, my fear, like to a place of like, okay, there's fear moving through me, or there's, oh, that's an interesting story that I'm saying, but I don't have to believe it. And this is like really revolutionary with mindfulness practice. I mean, I want to really underscore that it's revolutionary. I, to me, it's the most profound benefit possible in the entire thing. That's extraordinary. Um, and then, you know, you, you in your book, you outline so beautifully the, the three types of practices, focused, uh, flexible, and natural awareness. And I, I think that is such a tremendous, and to use the word anchor intentionally, uh, for my colleagues to to think about the different meditations and and what their potential use case is in de- in various things. Can you please go through those and and describe those as you might teach it? Sure. Um, so first of all, a, a good analogy is the analogy of a camera. Like when a camera takes a photograph, it can take a photograph with a telephoto lens. And when we do that, there's a lot of precision. It's usually something very narrow, very, you know, like looking at a flower up closely or something. And then cameras can take ordinary photos and then cameras can take panoramic lens photos. And it's not like one of them is better than the other. We just use them at different times for different reasons. Our attention is like that too. So I'm imagining people who are surgeons, I'm not one, but I'm imagining that when you have very good focused attention, right? Like your ability to focus on things that are that are like minute and, and keep that focus for a period of time is probably quite strong. Yeah. And it may be that those other types of awareness maybe are less a focus or certainly not what's needed at that time when you're when you're working. Um, but when we're driving, for instance, we need to have a more open awareness. If we had a very focused awareness, we'd probably hit something, you know. Like texting. Yes, exactly. Yes. Good point. So in 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 awareness practices, in mindfulness, what we see is that there are different ways to practice it that um that cultivate different different it's just different ways of doing it, essentially. So we can be mindful in a very precise telephoto way. And I call that focused awareness. And that's when, if you're just starting out, particularly in meditation, there's generally an invitation to notice something that's happening that's neutral in your body and just stay with it and keep coming back to it. I mentioned that earlier. So our breath, you know, just being with the breath and our attention wanders and we bring it back. And then we notice the breath, another breath and our attention wanders and we bring it back. So this narrows our focus and it develops concentration it gathers, unifies our minds and creates a stability of mind that's very, very helpful. Um, a- another analogy is like if you 
if you ever did this as a child, you had a magnifying glass and you held it over a newspaper and the rays of the sun mm -hmm. were very diffuse. But when you gathered through the magnifying glass, it gave a certain amount of power to it, could even light the paper on fire. So that's the, the, the incredible power of concentration. A lot of people think that's how you meditate. That's it. And they're done. But that's not it. <laughs> There's only one way. This other category, which I call flexible awareness, and probably evolved a little since I wrote the book, so I sometimes call it investigative mm -hmm. awareness, mm -hmm. is where we we notice what's happening in real time, and we don't just stay focused on one thing, but we notice, oh, gosh, I'm having a difficult emotion. Can I bring my mindfulness to that and hold that in a way with kindness and with awareness and notice what's happening in my body or notice body sensations or notice... Um, Whatever is arising in the moment can become a focus of our awareness. And sometimes it's a, it's more of an open style. And so this this is really speaking as I, I'm thinking that people who are not meditators or not meditators may not know what I'm talking about here, but sometimes our meditation practice cannot be focused so much, but more have an open way of noticing things. And then I have a another category that I call natural awareness and natural awareness kind of let's go back to that story that I talked about when I was young and something happened where I just settled back into into life and I was present and there was these feelings of love and connection and that natural awareness I call it natural awareness because Every single person has that capacity to access natural awareness, and it can be cultivated through the meditation practice, but we also have it. So some people might have experienced it being out in nature where you just uh -huh. feel completely connected and present or in the midst of athletic activity where you're just in that zone and that flow or in the midst of creative activity or when you fall in love or, you know, there's so many ways that we experience um, that, that natural awareness where we don't have to work so hard. I know you all work really hard. There's this, <laughs> it's kind of like an antidote, just like, let's just relax and be and encourage that quality of our being that's so healing and helpful. And you make the point, and this this may be a little sound a little esoteric in terms of the entire schema here, but you make the point that these practices are really not hierarchical. Although uh, it seems in reading your book and your work that the focused awareness practice is sort of a good starting point to gain some stability. Do you want to just comment on kind of the path into these things and what you recommend? I generally like people to start where it's easiest. And mm -hmm. for most people who are starting a meditation, just learning the basics of kind of reining in the wild mind is very helpful. And so a focused awareness practice is a good place to start for start. a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all it is, as I mentioned, is just focusing on something and like your breath, usually your breath doesn't have to be, but it could be other things. And then when you notice that your your attention has wandered, you bring it back and you just kind of keep keep doing that over and over. And that's what builds all the things I was talking about, the stability of mind. And, um, 
as people gain that skill, there's often more of an ability to be present with other things that are happening in their body and mind, such as difficult thoughts and emotions or physical pain. So that's more in the flexible awareness territory where we can, oh, really, what's happening here? And you can use that to work with challenging experiences. And so that kind of practice is is great for for um, when we're having a hard time, right? It's something that we might we might really find useful, and um, and then the pan- more panoramic, the open awareness, the natural awareness. It's it's usually a little harder for people. It and it's it's um, I think it takes a certain level of stability in your mind to access it. However. I was just teaching a retreat where I take people for about, this was six days of meditation where they're spending the whole day meditating. And I introduced some of these more wide open practices and people. Are these novice meditators now? Well, there were 60 of them were novice and like 30 were not. But all these people, a big group. Yeah, we do like 100 people or so at a time. A bunch of beginners came up to me and said, you know, I've been doing this spacious practice all this time. I didn't even know it was a thing. Right. right? So, yeah. 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 So, so people, I I just encourage people to start wherever they are, wherever feels the easiest. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that you alluded to both in your, in in your talking about your experience in, in Burma and then the gentleness with which you return to things, uh, for people that are high striving individuals like myself and probably most of my colleagues and you, uh, you know, that, as you said, it cultivates compassion. I mean, can you, and, and a gentleness with the self and it, it, for me, that translated into other people too. It, 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 I don't, I can't quite explain it. Can you encapsulate that? And that's, that's another magical sort of transformation that happens over time. And another, another, uh, thing is, one of the challenges I think some people have with meditation is unlike if you go to the gym, you know, you come home, you're sore, uh, you know, you, you, you know, you did it. And it, it, it takes a little while for meditation in my, in my experience to start, to start reaping the, the cognitive and emotional benefits. I mean, w- what are your thoughts around that? It's um, well, I'll start with that one. It, you know, it's very different for different people. Some mm-hmm. people, they, they do it and they have an experience right away where they realize that, oh, there's peace here. You know, something is happening and it's different um, than their ordinary consciousness. Um, But a lot of people, it can feel like, okay, I'm just doing this and not much is happening. What I tend to ask people to do is to really contemplate, like, how is it impacting my life? So it's not about like, am I doing the meditation practice exactly right? But am I noticing changes? Am I more present with my kids? Do I feel like I'm really showing up with my partner? Am I less reactive, like less easily getting angry or irritated or, or anxious? These are signs that we start to see. And so sometimes it feels like, okay, nothing is happening, but I see these differences in my life. Right. So that's that's a big thing to keep in mind with practice and also not to get discouraged. You know, I think there's a big, big misconception with mindfulness meditation, other meditations that you're supposed to like sit down and your mind's supposed to go blank and nothing right. is going to happen. And that is just not the case. I don't, it's I mean, BS. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <It's> BS. <laughs> it doesn't happen for most of us. 
Um, what tends to happen instead is we just have lots and lots of thoughts, you know, yeah. because it, we, you know, we had thoughts two minutes before we sat down, we continue to have them when we do sit down. And this is not like something is wrong. This is not a sense of like, oh, no, I'm failing at meditation. It's, it's actually a sign of human intelligence, right? We've, yeah. we've evolved to search for threats and to have a mind that's very alert and constantly checking things and having lots of activity in it. And, um, what you're doing with this kind of practice is very counterintuitive. So it does take time. It does take time to teach our minds that we can find this place of ease and peace inside ourselves, that the happiness, the world tells us all our happiness is external. It's out there, but surprise, it's not. <laughs> happiness is who we are and how we relate to life and finding that place of inner well-being. This is such a key piece of meditation where we can go, okay, my life may be hard. There may be challenging things happen. We know we live in a world where there's like horrible things going on all the time, but yet we can find an internal peace that cannot be disturbed. And that's what these practices teach us. Yeah. Um, and it, it reminds me of a statement that you made early in the conversation about we're the cause of so much of our own suffering. And I, that's not a blame thing, but I, I see it everywhere now. I mean, once you, once you realize how you make yourself suffer with things, you start to see it everywhere else. I mean, do, any thoughts or comments on that? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is easy. People do make themselves suffer and we suffer because mostly out of habit and conditioning, habit. That's right? right? Yeah. It's yeah. just like we've, the concept of reactivity is important here, I think. So reactivity is when we act out of our habitual patterns without consciousness. And that's what's happening most of the day, all day long. We're just reacting to things. Someone cuts us off in traffic and we get mad. We forget something and we get mad at ourselves. We get, we get, anxious, irritated, like we're causing ourselves suffering. And, and definitely, like you said, not to blame ourselves. This is just the force of habit. The force, yeah. yeah. Right? And so with these practices, we can learn to have a little space, a little ease, this non-identification I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, where we can start to see like, oh, gosh, there's a lot. I'm There's a lot of anger in me at this moment, but I don't have to buy into it. I don't have to be caught by it. I can notice that it's kind of like a weather pattern. It's moving through me. It's coming and going. This is like a very key part of learning how to work with the suffering that we do create. And 100% not to blame ourselves, but to know that we don't have to live from that place of reactivity, but may have more access to a responsivity. How can we act skillfully in each moment to alleviate our suffering and then the suffering of others, which was sort of your earlier question. I don't think I got to um, check it. Well, another question that's related to what you're talking about, the suffering, and, and that is you mentioned pain, for instance, uh, how that can meditation can help with that. And it reminds me of the formula pain times resistance equals suffering. And, you know, I've had a lot of problems with, you know, hip pain, back pain, orthopedic issues, multiple joint replacements. And it seems pretty uh, counterintuitive, but I have learned that, and the same thing with motions, if I, if I can meditate on them and experience them fully and not try and avoid them, 
it actually really does work. Uh, you know, it modifies and tempers it down. You know, uh, it, what are your what do you think about that and that experience and the resistance piece? Uh, it's definitely what the research shows. You know, there's been quite a lot looking at how mindfulness impacts people with chronic pain, and 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 what what it what it seems to show is that for some people there's a a reduction in pain symptoms when they learn like go through say a mindfulness protocol, say like six weeks or something, eight weeks usually, um, but. For other people, the symptoms don't reduce, but their quality of life is better and they report more happiness and ease. And I think that's really what you're getting at, right? So that is what I'm getting at. Yes. Yeah. Not the reduction in pain. Yeah. Right. It's how we relate to the pain. So when we're having pain, and then this is the resistance piece that you're saying, but usually when people are having pain, not only are they having pain, but they're tightening around it. They're blaming themselves. They're blaming somebody else. They're angry. They're anxious. They're worried about the future. Right? This is all what we might think of like the suffering on top of it. Right. Right. So there's just the pain where it hurts, of course. But then there's all the stories. If only I hadn't done that and I should try this. And what if I, it never goes away? And all of these stories that. Yeah is the massive suffering we put on it. And so mindfulness can teach us to distinguish those two and to stay like, let's do, let's say we, we don't get on the train with those stories and right. instead it's... stay with the, what's the actual sensation in the moment? Burning, stabbing, aching. Okay, I can stay present with that without getting lost in the story and then creating all that suffering. Do you feel that there's a, a clear parallel with emotional struggles. Yeah, it's oh, the same pain definitely. of whatever sort. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Now, I'd like to touch on natural awareness, and because I that's I learned so much about your glimpse practices in your book and the way to access that, and I've been using them, and it's really it's it's just it's tremendous. Uh, you you have the skill at your fingertips anytime, and you know Thank one you. of the Really tremendous. Uh, It's so accessible. And I can't recommend your book, The Little Book of Being, enough to people. It's incredibly accessible, practical, and a lot of different practices. And I'm sure almost anybody could find the right practice for them in in your book. Uh, But what are your, is this the same? Now, just to back up, and you're featured for good reason on Sam Harris's Waking Up app, which is how I discovered you. And he approaches it, I think, in a very similar way, but I, I love the term natural awareness, but he talks about consciousness. Mm-hmm. And to me, this is a really cool kind of thing because I realized, I mean, I realize now so much that I have the awareness to look at, at my brain and how it's working and step above the entire project. And that's what he, that's a skill he gave me through the app, but you seem to have taken it to a, a kind of a little different layer the natural awareness are they one and the same thing consciousness natural awareness where does that fit in if if at all together in a puzzle yeah i you know i don't i'm not so i haven't been so up to date of how he's teaching these days so mm-hmm. but my guess is it's the same territory right? that's what i thought yeah so we're talking about an awareness that is um 
well, like I said, more panoramic, wide open, spacious awareness of awareness itself. This is like, so it's like, how, how do you actually become aware of consciousness? This is not an easy it's thing. It's crazy. To do, yeah. Right. And <laughs> Sam tries so to teach us how to do that. And that definitely like you can notice all these things that are happening. There's sights and sounds and smells and body sensations and thoughts and emotions. And then there's something that is experiencing <laughs> them all, right? This exactly. is awareness. Yeah. And that's, that's what these practices, whether Sam teaches it or how, how he does it or how I do it, that's what these practices are doing. They're turning us to awareness itself. And awareness, in my understanding of it, can be awareness is that which contains everything. So almost like if you think of the sky, wide open and spacious, and then everything that's happening in it, it's just like clouds floating by or mindful or uh, an awareness of awareness is awareness of that which knows. So is either that which contains everything, that which knows, finding the knower. That's an old ancient spiritual practice, like to ask yourself the question, who's noticing, who's experiencing this? And the third way that I like to talk about it is awareness. Awareness is that which is. It's kind of hard to describe, but when you you just sometimes people just experience like I'm just aware. Awareness is here, and these are again more advanced practices. So I don't want right. to lose anybody yeah. who's you know yeah. just starting out. But I'm just letting you know kind of the territory. I found one of my favorite things to do when I'm walking the dogs is to lay down on a park bench and just like you did when you were 15 or whatever, look up at the sky and the trees and that, and it really induces quickly that state of being mm -hmm. aware that I'm aware, you know, uh, for me, it's really a, a precious, precious moment every morning and night that I, that yeah, I do that. beautiful. I love yeah, that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think it'd be great if you would be willing to, to take us through a simple, small, mindfulness practice, either the natural awareness or breath or, you know, whatever you think would be good for our audience. I'd love to have that experience okay. with you. All right. So I will do a combo of things. I'll do a little bit of that more focused awareness that I talked about and then a little helping to just bring in the flavor of natural awareness. Um, so whoever is listening, uh, you can just settle back in a way that's comfortable and if you're driving, don't close your eyes, but if you'd like to close your eyes, you can do that and do whatever you wish. Like if you want to leave them open, that's also totally fine, but maybe looking downward so you're not too distracted. And then let's take a few deep breaths, deeper, slower, longer breaths. Inviting in that quality of relaxation, ease, or at least the potential for that, that possibility. And now let's turn our attention to our body, noticing that our body is breathing. So you might first notice that your maybe your feet are on the floor, how your body is seated on the furniture, wherever you are. And just let yourself feel the stability. And now notice your body is breathing, that your abdomen is rising and falling with each breath. 
and your chest is rising and falling, expanding and contracting with each breath. And that the air may be moving through your nose so there's tingling and warmth and coolness is definitely happening and can you tune into that? So let's find something to focus on, the breath in one of these three areas, abdomen, chest, or nose. And pick whichever is the easiest or the clearest. If you're not sure, just pick one. It doesn't matter so much. So we'll notice a breath, breath after breath. One breath ends. The next breath begins. And as you do this, you might notice that your attention starts to wander, start planning or thinking, imagining. If this happens, you're not doing anything wrong. Just notice it's wandered and then come right back, bringing it right back, back to the breath in the abdomen, chest, or nose. So we're going to try this just for a minute, maybe, and see what happens as you do this. We're not doing it for a long time, but just notice is that at least to the start, for the start here, is it feeling relaxing, easeful, restful? It may or may not, but just to notice. And now see if you can bring to mind a time in your life where you felt a sense of ease, peace, connection, relaxation. And it doesn't have to be a big dramatic moment. It could be something more, uh, you know, very subtle or ordinary. So it might be a time you were in nature where you were really feeling at home and connected, maybe in a beautiful place. Or perhaps, as I mentioned, in the midst of some athletic activity where you're just in the zone or creative activity, dancing or music, art, or maybe with a dear friend, just laughing and really present and connected. And there's a quality of ease and maybe some joy. And as you bring something to mind, try to remember where were you? Where were you? Can you remember anything about the what you could see or hear, smell, taste, touch? So just to notice that. 
And notice in particular, how did I feel when I was in this place of connection, of well-being? If there's any quality that you can recognize in your body, really let it be here. Let it be here. Let it grow. Maybe it's expansiveness, spaciousness, connection, joy. Just breathe and take this last little bit of time to just rest in the memory and the feeling of your own awareness. It's quite natural. It's part of you. And then whenever you're ready, you can open your eyes or end the meditation. That was great. Um, you seem to lead us from a focused awareness practice to kind of letting us dip into a natural awareness practice. Yeah, <clears throat> and that that again in, in your book, the little book of being. There's so many uh, wonderful ways that you can access this through the practices that you outline there on on any given moment. And instead of popping a pill or a distraction, you can pop one of these glimpse practices as, <laughs> as Diana calls them, you know, into your day. And it really does kind of put the brakes on, on the fire in the brain and, and allows you to get a, a window into that. It's, it's quite lovely. Thank you very much. You, you also make clear in, in your book and it's clear to me that this is a practice, right? Do you have any, you have a few words about the fact that this is a practice. This is a practice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we live in a time where people are constantly looking for quick fixes, and mm-hmm. this is not one of them. I mean, you can have an instantaneous feeling of, oh, I feel more at ease. But in order for it to sustain and become part of your life in a real way, it takes it takes practice. And so what I recommend, if you're interested in, in doing these practices, um, to start with just a short amount, like five minutes a day, just to get going. And then once you feel like, okay, five minutes is doable, then you can expand that. Um, I, I like to have people do it at the sort of same time of the day, if they can, like either when they get up or when they come home from work or school or uh, before bed. Just so it's re- regular and consistent, because that's how habits are formed. Habit, right. And um, and then my recommendation is it's helpful to to be guided. It's hard to do this on your own, and so that's why you keep mentioning apps. Of course, those are mm-hmm. great. That was yeah. my next question. Yeah, apps <laughs> yeah. and stuff. Yeah. We have an app at UCLA. It's called UCLA Mindful, and it's okay. a free app. And I have five-minute meditations, 10-minute, 20-minute meditations. And then there's a whole set of like thematic meditations. And I have some natural awareness meditations. You just have to search for that in that. And then, of course, as you mentioned, I'm on um, the Waking Up app where I offer a whole kind of course on doing it. I even have an, I even have a um, 
I don't know if it will CD slash download course on the what I call glimpses of being. So you have there's like a much more thorough investigation of these practices as well. Where would one find that? Because I didn't see that. That's that um, I think website or? Sound, my own website has a link to it. It's it's available through Sounds True. And, okay. um, and you can go to my website also, dianawinston.com. Great. Great. And, you know, I've found you, you would, I'm sure, agree that the apps, you kind of find one that works for you. You know, what, you're, what works for you is what's best. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I found I've tried various things and the waking up app worked for me, but I have a tendency towards that kind of intellectualization and, you know, that Sam Harris is so good at, but, you know, so good at other things. But yeah, so you find the one that works for you and stick with it is the bottom line. Well, you know, the kind of the last thing I wanted to touch on is something you mentioned in the beginning, and that is our society uh, at large and uh, being a good person and how meditation can help our society and our, our, our being at large. I'd love, I'd love you to comment on it because there's a wonderful chapter in your book about that, that really, in my opinion, I've thought about this, it really is an imperative that we get a handle on these things, you know, for our mm -hmm. own benefit, for the society's benefit, for humankind. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Um, I'm thinking back to the research. So there's interesting research, as I mentioned, looking at the impact of these practices on, on qualities of altruism, generosity, kindness, compassion. And there's some very direct links. Um, one of my favorite studies was with uh, people went through a mindfulness program and then they went ostensibly to be tested for their knowledge and they went into a waiting room and the waiting room was actually the experiment. And there were two chairs. One was occupied and um, and then the the subject comes in, sits on the other chair, is waiting, and then a person comes in on a on crutches, and then they wait to see who's going to give the chair up. Mm -hmm. And then of course the the person who's sitting there is an actor, and they're told not to do it because of the bystander effect. Anyway, the people who meditated, who practiced mindfulness, they gave up their chair about three times more often than the people who didn't. Mm -hmm. So this is like, this is a, a small, it has been replicated a few times, this experiment, but, um, but it's just pointing to something that's really a deeper thing that you're, you're asking. And we, we are living in times that are just so astounding to me with how topsy-turvy they are, where, yes, where anger and violence is deified and kindness is considered. I mean, it's, it's so disturbing. What is so disturbing. So disturbing. It's so disturbing. So what we need is like a force of goodness in this world to counteract all the negativity and the meanness and the hatred that is out there. And, and so in my belief is that these practices lead to profound states of well-being and kindness and compassion. You can see that it's, it's measurable. And so the more people who do this practice, the more people will have living from these places of kindness. And we can really create almost like a kindness revolution yes. to counteract the, 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 you know, the terrible structures that are out there causing so much harm. So, yes, that's why I call it also evolutionary imperative. Like we got to go there. We have to do it. Yeah. yeah. And it, it speaks to the truth of the contagious nature of how we are and how we show up in the world. 
either negative or positive, you know, That's right. it is contagious. Yeah. So spread, spread the, the good contagion through this practice. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I think that's a beautiful place to end our discussion. And I, I thank you so much for taking the time to help enlighten us, mm. <laughs> use the, the word appropriately. Uh, and uh, I, you've mentioned several places where people can access your work. And, and that is there anything else you'd like to mention in terms of how they can find you or find your work? Yeah, so I mentioned my website, annawinston.com, and then I also, for UCLA, our website, which has a, a lot of programs and things people can join, including many, many online classes. Our, our main class is called MAPS, Mindful Awareness Practices, and it's a six-week class where you learn the basics of meditation. It's really helpful. We've had Oh, actually, there's this there's a research study going on that we're affiliated with of mindfulness for surgeons. I just was thinking about that right now. Is that um, by chance with Carter Liberis? Uh, yes, yes. UCSF? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, we're she, doing she trained with me in Minnesota. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. It's really leading the charge in this world. It's yeah. wonderful. I'm so happy what they're doing. Yeah, so we have a site in LA for a big multi-site. Um, but anyway, at our at our center, that's um, the website is uclahealth.org slash mark, and they can see what's going on. And then there's our UCLA Mindful app. I'm also on um, 10% Happier. And then I have a couple of other books. I have a book called Fully Present, The Science, Art, and Practice of Mindfulness that I co-wrote with a scientist. So for those of you who are listening who are curious, but you really want to know what the science behind it is, that would be a great place to start. So those are some resources. Great. Well, thank you for giving us, pun intended, a glimpse into the world of meditation. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.